0: Fourteen Voice All gemstones leak stormlight at a slow rate, but so long as the crystal structure remains mostly intact, the spren cannot escape. Managing this leakage is important, as many fabrials also lose stormlight through operation. All of this is tied up in the intricacies of the art as is understanding one last vital kind of spren, logic spren. Lecture on Fabrial Mechanics Presented by Navani Colin to the Coalition of Monarchs Erethiru, Yesavan, 1175 The palace at Kolinar had undergone a dramatic transformation to a new form, so to speak, Here, more than any other place in the city, Venley felt she could look into the past and see the history of her people. Gone was the ornate but boring human fortress. In its place stood a grand construction that used many of the original foundations and walls, but expanded upon them in a unique design. Instead of boxy lines, it contained grand arcs, with large ridges sweeping down from the sides like curved blades. These multiplied toward the top, the ridges rising to points. The result was a curved conical shape, the peak resembling a crown. The architecture had a distinctly organic feel, enhanced by walls grown over with shale bark to give a rough, uneven texture. The palace vaguely resembled a plant. Bulging at the base, with gentle blades sweeping up to the cap. Venley approached, attuned to tension. The last twenty hours had been a chaotic jumble as she'd accompanied Leshwy through the city, meeting with other fused, looking for information. Venley didn't completely understand why it had set Leshwy off, but a new group of fused spirits had awakened. And come for bodies. That wasn't unexpected. Some of the fused on Brays slumbered, or hibernated, meditated. They were coming aware in groups and joining the battle. But several in particular had Leshwy worried, perhaps terrified. After a day of chaos spent investigating with Leshwy, Venley had awakened to thunder early in the morning. The Everstorm right after it she'd received word a conclave of the most important singers had been called to the palace as voice venley was expected to arrive quickly and on her own for leshwi would take the entrance provided for the chenayim above venley tried to calm herself as she walked by focusing on the beautiful palace structure she wished she could have lived in a time when this architecture was commonplace she imagined entire cities made of these transfixing arcs, one part dangerous, one part beautiful, like the natural world. We did this, she thought. When I first returned from the human lands, she spoke to awe about the grand creations of the humans. But we did things like this, too. We had cities. We had art. We had culture. The rebuilding of the palace had been overseen and accomplished by several fused, of a tall, limber variety called fananim, those ones of alteration. Though all fused were trained as warriors, many had other skills. Some were engineers, scientists, architects. She thought perhaps they'd all once been soldiers before being granted immortality. But the time they'd had to grow sins was expansive. What would it be like to live so many lives, such wisdom and such capacity? Seeing such things awakened emotions within her, not just awe, but craving. Were new fused being made? Could someone like her aspire to this immortality? Timber pulsed a warning inside her, and Venley forcibly resisted those instincts. It was not easy. Perhaps as a surgebinder, she should have been naturally selfless, naturally noble, like Eshanai. Venley was neither. A part of her still longed for the path she'd once imagined, blessed by the Fused for opening the way to their return, heaped with honors for being the first among her people to listen to the Voidspren, bringer of the Everstorm. Should she not have become a queen for these actions? Timber pulsed another warning. Comforting, this time. Odium would never give her these honors. Venley had been deceived. Her lusts had led to great pain and destruction. She needed a way to balance her heritage and her goals. She was determined to escape the rule of the fused, but that did not mean she wanted to abandon singer culture. Indeed, the more she discovered about the singers of old, the more she wanted to know. She reached the top of the steps and passed by two of the Fanan Im, the altered ones, with limber seven-foot-tall bodies and piles of hair that sprouted only from the very tops of their heads, tumbling down around the carapace that covered the rest of their skulls. These two had not been among those who had built the palace, for they sat with vacant stares. Timber pulsed to the rhythm of the lost. Gone. Like so many of the fused, their minds had been claimed by the infinite cycle of death and rebirth. Perhaps there was a reason not to envy their immortality. The inner entryway of the palace had been rebuilt with sweeping staircases, walls had been removed, and dozens of rooms had been combined. In the large chambers, they didn't shut the windows during storms. They simply rolled up the carpets. Venley climbed all the way to the fifth floor, entering a pinnacle room added by the fused architects. Large and cylindrical, it was the center of the crown shape. This place was the home of the nine, leaders of the fused. Other voices were gathering. There were some thirty of them. She'd been led to believe that there would be as many as a hundred Once all the fused were awake, this room wouldn't hold that many voices, even if they lined up shoulder to shoulder. As it was, it was growing crowded, as each voice found their place before their master. Leshwe hovered a few feet off the ground near the other heavenly ones, and Venley hastened over. She looked up, and Leshwe nodded, so Venley thumped the butt of her staff on the stones, indicating her master was ready. The nine were already there, of course. They couldn't leave. They'd been entombed in stone. Nine pillars adorned the center of the chamber, rising in a circle. The stones had been soul-cast into shape, with people inside them. The nine lived here, permanently melded into the pillars, Again there was an organic feel to the construction, as if the pillars had grown there like trees around the nine. The pillars twisted and tapered, shrinking and growing into the chests of the nine, but leaving their heads and the tops of their carapaced shoulders bare. Most had at least one arm free. The nine faced inward, their backs to the room. The bizarre entombment was discomforting, alien, nauseating. It lent the nine an air of permanence to accent their ageless nature. The pillars seemed to say, these are older than the stones. They have lived here long enough for the rock to grow over them, like creme reclaiming the ruins of a fallen city. Then they couldn't help but be impressed by their dedication. Being locked into motionlessness like this had to be agonizing. The Nine did not eat, subsisting on Odium's light alone. Surely this entombment wasn't good for their sanity. Though, if they really did want to leave their imprisonment, they could simply have themselves killed. A Fused could also will their spirit from their body, freeing it to seek another host. Indeed, the humans had tried imprisoning Fused as a method of defeating them, but had found it to be futile. So the Nine could leave, if they wanted. In that light, these tombs were a flagrant, wasteful act. The ultimate price for this show was paid not by the Nine, but by the poor singers they had killed to give themselves bodies. The Nine must have counted the knocking of the staffs on the ground. For they raised their heads in unison once the final high lord was in place. Venley glanced at Leshwi, who was humming softly to agony, the new rhythm that was a counterpart to anxiety. What is happening? Venley whispered to Craving. What does this have to do with the new fuse to have awakened? Watch, Leshwi whispered, but take care. Remember, what power I have outside is a mere candle's light in here. Leshwy was, for a high lady, low ranked, a field commander, but still merely a soldier. She was both the very crust of the unimportant and the very dregs of the important. She was always careful in walking that line. The nine hummed together. Then began singing in unison, a song and rhythm Venley had never heard. It sent chills through her, particularly when she realized she couldn't understand the lyrics. She felt near to comprehending it was almost within reach, but her powers seemed to shy back from this song, as though if she could understand her mind would not be able to handle the meaning. she was fairly certain what this indicated. Odium, the god of the singers, was watching this conclave. She knew his touch, his stench. He was forbidding any of the voices from interpreting this song. It died down, and silence claimed the chamber. We would hear a report, one of the nine said at last. Venley had trouble telling who spoke, since they were all facing one another. A first hand account of what was seen at the recent clash in northern Avendla. Avendla was their name for Alethkar. Venley's powers instantly knew the meaning of the word. Land of the Second Advance. Her abilities stopped there, however, and she couldn't answer the more interesting question Why was it called that? Leshwy hummed, so Venley stepped forward and cracked her scepter against the floor twice, then bowed, head down. Leshwy rose behind her, clothing rustling. I will have Zandiel provide sketches. The large human ship flew of its own power, using no gemstones we could see, though certainly they were embedded somewhere inside. It flew by lashings, one of the nine said. The work of wind runners. No, Leshwe said. It did not have that appearance or that feel. This was a device, a machine, created by their artifabrians. The nine sang together, and their alien song made timber, deep within Venley, pulse nervously. We were away far too long, one of the nine said. It has let the humans fester like an infection, gaining strength. They create devices we have never known. We are behind them, not ahead, another said. It is a dangerous position from which to fight. No, said a third. They have made great strides in understanding the prisons of Spren but they know little about the bond, the power of oaths, the nature of the tones of the world. They are kremlings building a nest beneath the shadow of a great temple. They take pride in what they have done, but cannot grasp the beauties around them. Still, said the first, still, we could not have crafted the flying device they have. Why would we? We have the shanaeim. Venley remained bowed, hand on her staff. Holding the pose exactly grew uncomfortable, but she would never complain. She was as close to important events as a mortal could get, and she was certain she could use the knowledge to some advantage. The nine spoke for the ears of those listening. They could have conversed quietly, but these meetings were about the spectacle. Leshui, one of the nines said, what of the suppressor we sent to be tested? Did it work? It worked, Leshwi said, but it was also lost. The humans captured it. I fear this will lead them to further explorations and discoveries. This was poorly handled, said one of the fused. I take no responsibility for this error, Leshwy said. You must speak to the pursuer to find record of the mistake. Each spoke with formal tones and rhythms. Venley had the impression that the nine knew how these answers would play out. Lesion! The nine called together. You will. Oh, dispense with the pageantry! A loud voice said. A tall fused emerged from the shadows on the far side of the room. Leshwy lowered down, and Venley straightened and stepped back into line before her master. That gave her a good view of this new fused, which was of a variety that Venley had never seen. Enormous, with jagged carapace and deep red hair, the being wore only a simple black wrap for clothing. Or, was his hair the clothing? It seemed to meld with the wrap. Fascinating. Nexime, those ones of husks, the ninth brand of fused. She had heard them spoken of, supposedly very few existed. Was this the recently awakened fused who had Leshwe so concerned? Lesion, the pursuer said one of the nine. You were entrusted with a delicate device, a suppressor of stormlight abilities. You were told to test it. Where is this device? I tested it, Lesian snapped, showing little of the formality or respect, others gave the nine. It didn't work. You are certain of this? The nine asked. Was the man invested when he attacked you? You think I could be defeated by a common human? the pursuer demanded. This Wind Runner must be of the fourth ideal. Something I was led to believe had not yet happened. Perhaps our reconnaissance teams have lost their edge during the long time spent between returns. Behind Venley, Leshwy hummed sharply to conceit. She did not like that implication. Regardless, the pursuer said, I was killed. The Wind Runner is more dangerous than any of us were led to believe. I must pursue him now, as is my right by tradition. I will leave immediately. Curious, Venley thought. If he'd fought Stormblessed, then he could not be the newly awakened one that we feared. The pursuers stood with arms crossed as the nine began to sing to one another again, softer than before. In the past, such deliberations had taken several minutes. Many of the other fused began conferring quietly as they waited. Venley leaned back, whispering, Who is he, lady? A hero. Leshwy responded to withdrawal. And a fool. Millennia ago, Lesion was the first fused to be killed by a human. To avoid the shame of such death, upon returning to life, Lesion ignored all orders and rational arguments and went into battle seeking only the man who had killed him. He was successful, and his tradition was born. Any time he is killed, Lesion ignores everything else until he has claimed the life of the one who killed him. Seven thousand years, and he's never failed. Now the others, even those chosen as the nine, encourage his quests. I thought in the past, you were exiled to Braze. Once you died, how could he return to hunt the one who had killed him? Much of this was still confusing to Venley. For thousands of years, the humans and the singers had fought many rounds of an eternal war. Each new wave of attacks had involved what was called a return, when the fused would descend to Rochar. The humans called these desolations. There was something special about the way the human heralds interacted that could lock the fused on braes, the land called damnation by the humans. Only once the fused broke the heralds through torture, sending them back to Rochard, could a return be initiated. This cycle had played out for millennia, until the last desolation, where something had changed something to do with a single herald and an unbreakable will. You mistake the cycle. Simplify it, Leshwe said softly. We were only locked on, Bray's, once the heralds died and joined us there. Until then, there would often be years or even decades of rebirths during a return. During which time the Heralds would train humans to fight. Once they were confident that humans could continue to stand, the Heralds would give themselves to brays to activate the isolation. The Heralds would need to die for this to work. But they didn't die the last time, Venley said. They remained, but you were still locked away. Yes, Leshwe said. They somehow found a way to shift the oath pact to depend on a single member. She nodded toward the pursuer. Regardless, before an isolation began, that one always managed to find and kill any humans who had bested him. As soon as the isolation was begun, he'd kill himself so he'd never return to Braze permanently after having died by human hand. As I said, the others encourage his tradition. He is allowed to act outside command structures, given leeway to pursue. When he is not hunting one who killed him, he seeks to fight the strongest of the enemy radiance. That sounds like a worthy passion. Venley said, picking her words carefully. Yes, it does sound like one, Leshwe said to derision. Perhaps it would be in someone less reckless. Lesion has endangered our plans, undermined strategies, and ruined more missions than I can count, and he's growing worse as all of us are i suppose he was killed by the wind runner hero venley asked the one they call stormblessed yes yesterday and the radiance powers were suppressed at the time no matter what lesian said stormblessed is not yet of the fourth ideal i would know this is doubly a shame on the pursuer he grows careless Overly confident. These radiants are new to their powers, but that does not make them less worthy. You like them, Venley said, cautiously broaching the topic. The Wind Runners. Leshwy was silent for a moment. Yes, she said. They and their Spren would make excellent servants. Should we be able to subdue them? So she was open to new ideas, new ways of thinking. Perhaps she would react favorably to the idea of a new nation of listeners. Announce me, voice, Leshwe said. Now, Venley said, shocked out of her contemplations. While the nine are conferring? Leshwe hummed to command, so Venley scrambled to obey, stepping forward and slamming the butt of her staff against the floor, then bowing. The nine interrupted their song, and the one who spoke said the words to destruction. What is this, Leshwy? I have more to say, Leshwy proclaimed to command. The pursuer is losing control. He approaches the state where his mind and intentions cannot be trusted. He was defeated by a common human. It is time for special privileges to be revoked. Lezien spun toward her, shouting to destruction. How dare you? You are low to make such a declaration, Leswy one of the nine said. This is both above and beneath you at once. I speak my passion, she said. The man who killed the pursuer has killed me. I claim prior privilege to the life of Stormblessed. The pursuer must in this case wait upon my pleasure. You know my tradition, he shouted at Leshwi. Traditions can be broken. The tall fused stomped toward her, and Venley had to forcibly hold herself in place, bowing, though she was allowed to look up and watch. This pursuer was enormous, intimidating. He was also nearly out of control, a storm at its height, so angry she couldn't make out the rhythm to his shouted words. I will hunt you! he shouted. You cannot deny me my vows. My tradition cannot be broken. Lashwy continued to hover in place unperturbed, and Venley saw an ulterior motive in the conflict. Yes, the nine were humming to derision. In losing his temper, the pursuer proved his passion a good thing to them but also risked proving he was going crazy. Leshwe had purposefully goaded him. We accept Leshwe's prior claim on this man, the Nine said. Pursuer, you will not hunt this human until Leshwe has a chance to battle him again. This undermines my entire existence, the pursuer said. Pointing at Leshwi, she seeks to destroy my legacy out of spite. Then you should hope she loses their next conflict. One of the nine said, "Leshwi, you may hunt this Wind Runner, but know that if a battle comes and he must be removed, another may be granted the task." This is understood. And accepted, Leshwe said. None of them realize she's trying to protect that Wind Runner, Venley thought. Maybe she doesn't realize it herself. There were schisms among the fused, cracks, much larger than any would admit. What could be done to take advantage of them? Timber pulsed inside her. But in this case, Venley was certain her ambition was well placed. To lack it would be to simply go along with whatever she was told. That was not freedom. Freedom, if she was to seek it, would require ambition, in the right place. The pursuer, still raging to no particular rhythm, stomped out of the conclave chamber. Leshwy settled down behind Venley, humming softly to exultation. Do not praise yourself overly much, Leshwe, one of the nine called. Do not forget your low station in this room. We have our own reasons for denying the pursuer. Leshwe bowed her head as the nine returned to their private conversation. You could be more, Venley whispered, returning to her place beside Leshwi. These are not as clever as you are, lady. Why do you let them continue to treat you so poorly? I have chosen my station carefully, Leshwe snapped. Do not challenge me on this voice. It is not your place. I apologize, Venley said to Agony. My passion outstripped my wisdom. That. Was not passion, but curiosity. Leshwy narrowed her eyes. Be alert. This matter was not the reason the conclave was called. The danger I've been fearing is yet to come. That made Venley stand up straighter, on her guard. Eventually the nine stopped singing, but they did not address the leaders of the fused. Instead, the hall fell silent. Moments stretched to minutes. What was happening? A figure darkened the doorway of the chamber, backlit by sunlight. It was a tall female of the Fananim, the builders who had created the palace, with a tall topknot of hair and carapace like a helmet otherwise covering her head. She wore a luxurious robe, and was willowy, with a narrow figure and long arms, fingers fully twice the length of Venley's. Leshwe hissed. Gods, no. Not her. What? Venley asked, as the room flooded with whispers from the others. Who is she? I thought her mad, leshwy said to Agony. How? The tall fused walked into the room and did a slow, careful loop around the perimeter, perhaps to make certain she was seen by everyone. Then she did something Venley had never seen anyone do, no matter how high. She walked into the center of the nine and looked them in the eyes. What does it mean, lady? Venley asked. She was one of the nine for many centuries, Leshwee said. Until she decided it was too hampering upon her ambitions. After the last return and her madness, she was to remain asleep. Why? Raboniel, Lady of Wishes, one of the nine said, You have brought us a proposal. Please speak it. It is obvious, Raboniel said that the humans have been allowed too much time to grow. They run rampant across Rochar. They have steel weapons and advanced military tactics. They outstrip our own knowledge in areas. The one thing they do not yet have is mastery over their powers. There are few among them of the fourth ideal. Perhaps only one individual and they do not have full access to the tower now that the sibling is dead. We must strike now. We must seize the tower from them. we moved forward, not waiting for Venley to announce her. This was tried. We attempted to seize the tower and failed. That, Raboniel said, that was a stalling tactic intended to isolate the bondsmith. The strike could never have succeeded. I was not involved. You forget your place again, Leshwe, one of the nine said. This makes us wonder if you are the one who is losing her mind. Leshwi retreated to her spot and Venley felt the eyes of the other thirty fused and their voices on her, shaming her as they hummed. You have nearly perfected the suppression, Fabriels," Raboniel said. Do not forget. It is technology I discovered from the tower itself, thousands of years ago. I have a plan to use it in a more dramatic way. As the sibling is essentially a deadeye, I should be able to turn the tower's defenses against its owners. A voice across the room stepped forward and thumped his staff, announcing Uriam the Defiant. Pardon, Uriam said to Craving. But are you implying that you can suppress the powers of the radiance? inside their own tower? Yes, Raboniel said. The device preventing us from attacking them there can be inverted. We will need to lure the Caller and the Bondsmith away. Their oaths may be advanced enough to push through the suppression, much as the Unmade have done at the Tower in the past. With them gone, I can lead a force into Eurythiru and seize it from within, and the Radiants will be unable to resist. The nine started singing to one another privately, giving everyone else time for conversations. Venley looked to her mistress. Leshwy rarely spent these moments talking to the other high fused. She was beneath most of them, after all. I don't understand, Venley whispered. Raboniel is a scholar, Leshwy said. But not the kind you would wish to work beneath. We used to call her Lady of Pains, until she decided she didn't like the title. Her expression grew distant. She has always been fascinated by the tower and the connection between Radiants, their oaths, their spren, their surges. During the last return, she developed a disease intended to kill all humans on the planet. Near the end, it was discovered that the disease would likely kill many singers as well. She released it anyway, only to find to all of our fortunes that it did not work as expected. Fewer than one in ten humans were killed, and one in a hundred singers. That's terrible, Venley said. Extinction is the natural escalation of this war. Leshwe whispered, if you forget why you are fighting, then victory itself becomes the goal. The longer we fight, the more detached we become, both from our own minds and from our original passions. She hummed softly to abashment. Explain your plan, Raboniel, one of the nine said. Loudly enough to cut through conversations. I will lead a team into the tower, Raboniel said. Then secure control of the sibling's heart. Using my natural talents and the gifts of odium, I will corrupt that heart and turn the tower to our needs. The humans will fall. Their powers will not work, but ours will. From there, I suspect that, with a little time, I can learn much, studying the gemstones at the sibling's heart. Perhaps enough to create new weapons against the Radiants and the humans. One of the Heavenly Ones, a Malan named Jeshishin, came forward as his voice rapped the floor. As Leshwi said, we did strike at the tower a year ago. True, that attempt was not meant to be a permanent seizure but we were rebuffed. I would know the specifics of what we will do this time to ensure victory. We will use the king who has given himself to us, Raboniel said. He has delivered intelligence about guard patterns. We don't need to take the entire tower at first. We simply need to get to the heart and use my knowledge to turn the defenses to our advantage. The heart is the most well-guarded location, Jeshishin said. Raboniel spoke to conceit. Then it is fortunate that we have an agent in their inner circle, is it not? Jeshishin floated back, his voice returning to his place. What is her true game? Leshwi whispered to Craving. Raboniel has never really been interested in the war or its tactics. This must be about something more. She wants the opportunity to experiment upon the sibling. This is dangerous, one of the nine loudly said to the room. The humans are suspicious of Terra Vengian already. He reports that he is watched at all times. If we use his intelligence in this way, there is little doubt he will be compromised entirely. Let him be compromised, Raboniel said. What good is a weapon if you don't swing it? Why have you delayed? The humans are untrained, their powers fledgling, their understanding laughable. I find it embarrassing to awaken and find you struggling against these pitiful shadows of our once mighty enemies. Without the tower, their coalition will disintegrate, as they will be unable to deliver support through the Oath Gates. We will gain great advantage through the use of those same portals. In addition, this endeavor will give me the opportunity to test some theories I have developed while slumbering these last millennia. I am increasingly certain I have discovered a path that will lead to an end to the war. Leshy hissed out slowly, and Venley felt cold. It seemed that whatever Raboniel thought would end the war would involve techniques best left untouched. The rest of the room, however, appeared impressed. They whispered to subservience, indicating consent to the idea. Even the Nine started humming to the rhythm. The Fused put on a strong, passionate show, but there was a fatigue to these ancient souls. It underpinned their other passions, like the true color of a dyed cloth. Wash it, leave it out in the storms long enough, and the core shone through. These creatures were fraying, surrendering their minds, their will and very individuality offered up to Odium on the altar of eternal war. Perhaps the humans were new to their abilities, untested, but the fused were old axes, chipped and weathered. They would take great risks after so many rebirths, to be finished at last. What of storm blast, a voice called out, thickly accented, from the recesses of the grand chamber. Venley found herself humming to abashment as she searched the room. Who had spoken so brashly, without first ordering their voice to step forward? She found him sitting on a raised ledge, up above, in shadow, right as her mind connected the accent to the lack of decorum. Fire. The human, once called Moash. He dressed like a soldier with perfectly trimmed hair, a sharp uniform cut after human tailoring. He was an oddity. Why did the Nine continue to suffer him? Not only that, why had they given him an honor blade, one of the most precious relics on Roshar? He draped one leg off the ledge, held in his lap, His sword reflected sunlight as the tip moved. He'll stop you, Vire said. You should have a plan for dealing with him. Ah, the human, Raboniel said, looking at Vire on his ledge. I've heard of you. Such an interesting specimen. Odium favors you. He takes my pain. Vire said, and leaves me to achieve my potential. You did not answer my question. What of Stormblessed? I'm not afraid of a Wind Runner, no matter how mythical his reputation may be growing, Raboniel said. We will focus our attention on the Bondsmith and the Else Caller. They are more dangerous than any simple soldier. Well, wow, Vire said, pulling the tip of his sword back into the shadows. I'm sure you know your business, fused. The nine, as always, suffered the strange human. His position had been chosen by odium. Leshwy seemed to think highly of him. Of course, he'd once killed her, and that was a sure way to gain her respect. Your proposal is bold, Raboniel, one of the nine said, and decisive. We have long been without your guidance in this return, and we welcome your passion. We will move forward as you request. Prepare a team for your infiltration of the tower, and we shall contact the human Teravangian with instructions. He can divert the bondsmith and else caller. Raboniel sang loudly to satisfaction, a stately and decisive sound. Venley was reasonably certain this entire meeting had been for show. The nine had not stopped to debate the plan. They'd known what Raboniel would suggest, and had already worked out the details. The other fused waited respectfully, as Raboniel, her victorious proposal elevating her further in their eyes, walked toward the exit. Only one of the fused moved. Leshwy Come, she said, floating after Raboniel. Venley hurried, joining Leshwy as she intercepted the tall female and just outside the doors. Raboniel looked over Leshwy, humming to derision, as the two emerged into sunlight on the balcony rooftop around the chamber. The stairwell down was to the right, why did you seek to block my proposal, Leshwy? Raboniel asked. Have you begun to feel the effects of madness? I am not mad, but afraid, Leshwy said to abashment, and Venley started at the words. Lady Leshwy? Afraid? Do you truly think you can end the war? I'm certain of it, Raboniel said to derision. I have had a long time to ponder on the discoveries made before the end of the last return. She reached into the pocket of her robe and removed a gemstone glowing with stormlight, a shifting spren captured inside, a fabriel, like the humans created. They imprisoned some of the unmade in these, Leshwy Raboniel said. How close do you think they are to discovering they could do the same for us? Can you imagine it? Forever imprisoned in a gemstone, locked away, able to think, but unable to ever break free? Leshwe hummed to panic, a pained rhythm with unfinished measures and chopped up beats. One way or another, Raboniel said. This is the final return. The humans will soon discover how to imprison us. If not, well, the best of us who remain are but a few steps from madness. We must find a solution to this war. You are newly returned, Leshwe said. You have no servants or staff. Your undertaking will require both. She gestured to the side to Venley, I have gathered a staff of faithful and highly capable singers. I would lend them to you for this enterprise, and would attend you myself, as an apology for my objections. You do always have the best servants, Raboniel said, eyeing Venley. This one is the last listener, is she not? Once voice of Odium himself? How did you collect her? Timber pulsed inside Venley. She was annoyed by the term collect, and Venley felt the same. She bowed her head and hummed to subservience, to keep from revealing her true feelings. She was cast off by odium, Leshwe said. I have found her an excellent voice. The daughter of traitors, Raboniel said but to Craving. She was curious about Venley. Then a traitor to her own kind. I will take her, and those you send, as my servants during the infiltration. You may join us as well. Serve, and perhaps I will forgive your crass objections. There were certainly others thinking the same. You gave opportunity for refutation. Raboniel strode away, though as she reached the steps, Venley spotted someone waiting for her in the shadows below. The hulking figure of the pursuer, who had been dismissed earlier. He bowed to Raboniel, who hesitated at the top of the stairwell. Their exchange was not audible to Venley. He's begging for a chance to go with her, Leshwy whispered. Raboniel will have jurisdiction during this infiltration, and can authorize him to continue his hunt. He will try anything to justify another chance at that wind runner. I fear he will ignore the nine, particularly if Raboniel approves of him. She looked to Venley. You must gather our people and attend her. You will not need to fight. That will be done by others. You will serve her as you have me and report to me in secret. Mistress? Venley asked. She lowered her voice. So you don't trust her? Of course not, Leshwe said. Last time her recklessness nearly cost us everything. The nine favor her boldness. They feel the weight of time. Yet, boldness can be one step from foolishness, so we must prevent a catastrophe. This land is for the ordinary singers to inherit. I will not leave it desolate, simply to prove we can murder better than our enemies. Venley swelled at that timber surged inside her, pulsing, encouraging her, mistress she whispered, "Do you think there?" Could be a way to reform my people, find a land away from both fused and humans to be on our own again, as we were, Lesh we hummed to reprimand, glancing toward the chamber with the other fused. None had left yet; they wouldn't want to be seen rushing after Raboniel and Venley realized in a moment of understanding why Leshwi preferred to remain lowly among them. Her lack of standing gave her freedom to do things others considered beneath them. Do not speak of such things, Leshwi hissed. Others already mistrust you for what your ancestors did. You wish to rule yourselves? I commend that. But the time is not right. Help us defeat the humans. And then we fused will fade into time and leave this world to you. That is how to achieve your independence, Venly. Yes, mistress, she said to subservience. She didn't feel it, and Timber pulsed her own frustration. Venley had felt Odium's hand directly. He would not leave this people alone, and she suspected the other fused, tired though they might be, would not abandon ruling the world. Too many of them enjoyed the luxury of their positions. Victory for them was no path to independence for Venley and her people. Leshwy soared off, leaving Venley to walk down the steps. As she did, she caught sight of Raboniel and the pursuer speaking conspiratorially in the dim reaches of the third floor. Storms! What was Venley getting pulled into now? Timber pulsed inside her. Opportunity? Venley said. What kind of opportunity? Timber pulsed again. I thought you hated the human radiance, Venley whispered. Who cares if we're going to find them at the tower? Timber pulsed decisively. She had a point. Perhaps the humans could train Venley. Maybe she could capture one of their radiants and make him teach her. At any rate, she needed to prepare her staff to leave the city. Her recruitment efforts would have to be put on hold. Like it or not, she was going to be at the forefront of another invasion. Of the human lands,
1: fifteen. The Light and the Music
0: Logic Spren react curiously to imprisonment. Unlike other Spren they do not manifest some attribute. You cannot use them to make heat or to warn of nearby danger or conjoin gemstones. For years, artifabrians considered them useless. Indeed, experimenting with them was uncommon, since logic spren are rare and difficult to capture. A breakthrough has come in discovering that logic spren will vary the light they radiate based on certain stimuli. For example if you make the light leak from the gemstone at a controlled rate the spren will alternate dimming and brightening in a regular pattern this has led to fabrial clocks when the gemstone is tapped with certain metals the light will also change states from bright to dim this is leading to some very interesting and complex mechanisms electron fabrial mechanics Presented by Navani Kolin to the Coalition of Monarchs, Urethiru, Yesavan, 1175.
1: In the weeks following the assault on Hearthstone, Kaladin's anxiety began to subside, and he pushed through the worst of the darkness. He always emerged on the other side. Why was that so difficult to remember while in the middle of it? He'd been given time to decide what to do after his retirement, so he didn't rush the decision and didn't tell anyone other than Adolin. He wanted to find the best way to introduce the idea to his windrunners, and if he could, make his decision first. Better to bring them a clear plan. He found himself understanding Dalinar's order more and more as the days passed. At least Kaladin didn't have to keep pretending he wasn't exhausted. He did delay his decision, though, so Dalinar eventually gave him a gentle but firm nudge. Kaladin could have a little more time to decide his path, but they needed to start promoting other windrunners to take over his duties. So it was that ten days after the mission to Hearthstone, Kaladin stood in front of his army's command staff and listened to Dalinar announce that Kaladin's role in the army was evolving. Kaladin found the experience humiliating. Everyone applauded his heroism, even as he was forced out. Kaladin announced that Sigzil, with whom he'd conferred earlier in the day, would take over daily administration of the Windrunners, overseeing things like supplies and recruitment. He'd be named to the rank of Company Lord. Scar, when he returned from leave at the horn Peaks, would be named Company Second and would oversee and lead active Windrunner missions. A short time later, Kaladin was allowed to go. Fortunately, there was no forced party for him. He retreated down a long dark hallway in Urethiru, relieved that he didn't feel nearly as bad as he had worried he would. He wasn't a danger to himself today. Now he just had to find new purpose in life. Storms that scared him, having nothing to do reminded him of being a bridge man. When he wasn't on bridge runs, those days had stretched. Full of blank space that numbed the mind, a strange mental anesthetic. His life was far better now. He wasn't so lost in self-pity that he couldn't notice or acknowledge that. Still, he found the similarity uncomfortable. Sill hovered in front of him in the Eurythero hallway, taking the form of a fanciful ship, only with sails on the bottom. What is that? Kaladin asked her. I don't know, she said, sailing past him. Navani was drawing it during a meeting a few weeks ago. I think she got mixed up. Maybe she hasn't seen boats before? I sincerely doubt that's the case, Kaladin said, looking down the hallway. Nothing to do. No, he thought, you can't pretend you have nothing to do because you're scared. Find a new purpose. He took a deep breath, then strode forward. He could at least act confident. Have's first rule of leadership, drilled into Kaladin on his first day as a squad leader. Once you make a decision, commit to it. Where are we going? Sill asked, transforming into a ribbon of light to catch up to him. Sparring grounds. Going to try some training to take your mind off things? No, Kaladin said. I'm going to, against my better judgment, seek wisdom there. Many of the Ardens who train there seem pretty wise to me, she said. After all, they shave their heads. They, Kaladin frowned. Syl, what does that have to do with being wise? Hair is gross, It seems smart to shave it off. You have hair. I do not. I just have me. Think about it, Kaladin. Everything else that comes out of your body you dispose of quickly and quietly. But this strange stuff oozes out of little holes in your head, and you let it sit there? Gross. Not all of us have the luxury of being fragments of divinity. Actually, Everything is a fragment of divinities. We're relatives that way, she zipped in closer to him. You humans are merely the weird relatives that live out in the storm shelter, the ones we try not to let visitors know about. Kaladin could smell the sparring grounds before he arrived, the mingled familiar scents of sweat and sword oil. Sill shot to the left, making a loop of the room as Kaladin hurried past shouting pairs of men engaged in bouts of all types. He made his way to the rear wall where the swordmasters congregated. He'd always found martial ardents to be a strange bunch. Ordinary ardents made more sense. They joined the church for scholarly reasons, or because of family pressure, or because they were devout and wanted to serve the Almighty. Most martial ardents had different pasts. Many had once been soldiers, then given themselves over to the church. Not to serve, but to escape. He'd never really understood what might lead someone to walk that path. Not until recently. As he walked among the training soldiers, he was reminded why he'd stopped coming. Bowing, murmurs of storm blessed people making way for him. That was fine in the hallways when he passed people who didn't know him. But the ones who trained here were his brothers and, in some few cases, sisters in arms. They should know he didn't need such attention. He reached the swordmasters, but unfortunately the man he sought wasn't among them. Master Lahar explained that Za'el was on laundry detail, which surprised Kaladin. Though he knew all ardents took turns on service detail, he wouldn't have thought a swordmaster would be sent to wash clothing. As he left the sparring chamber, Syl came soaring back to him, wearing the shape of an arrow in flight. Did I hear you asking for Za'el? She asked. You did. Why? It's just that there are several swordmasters, Kaladin. A few of them are actually useful so why would you want to talk to Zael? He wasn't certain he could explain. One of the other sword masters, or likely any of the ardents who frequented the sparring grounds, could indeed answer his questions. But they, like the others, regarded Kaladin with an air of respect and awe. He wanted to talk to someone who would be completely honest with him. He made his way out to the edge of the tower, here, open to the sky, various tiered disks of stone projected from the base of the structure, like enormous fronds. Over the last year a number of these had been turned into pastures for chulls, lobber beasts or horses. Others were hung with lines for drying wash. Kaladin started toward the drying wash, but paused, then decided to take a short detour. Navani and her scholars claimed that these outer plates around the tower had once been fields. How could that ever have been the case? The air up here was cold, and though Rock seemed to find it invigorating, Kaladin could tell it lacked something. He grew winded more quickly, and if he exerted himself, he sometimes felt lightheaded in ways he never did at normal elevations. High storms hit here infrequently. Nine out of ten didn't get high enough, passing as an angry expanse below, rumbling their discontent with flashes of lightning. Without the storms, there simply wasn't enough water for crops, let alone proper hillsides for planting polyps. Still, at Navani's urging, the last six months had involved a unique project. For years, the Alethi had fought the Parshendi over gem hearts on the shattered plains. It had been a bloody affair built upon the corpses of bridgemen whose bodies, more than their tools, spanned the gaps between plateaus. It shocked Kaladin that so many involved in this slaughter had missed asking a specific and poignant question Why had the Parshendi wanted gemstones? To the Alethi, gemstones were not merely wealth but power. With a Soulcaster, emeralds meant food highly portable sources of nutrition that could travel with an army. The Alethi military had used the advantage of mobile forces without long supply lines to ravage across Roshar during the reigns of a half-dozen interchangeable kings. The Parshendi hadn't possessed soulcasters, though. Relaine had confirmed this fact. And then, he'd given humankind a gift— Kaladin walked down a set of stone steps to where a group of farmers worked a test field. The flat stone had been spread with seed paste, and that had grown rock buds. Water was brought from a nearby pump, and Kaladin passed bearers, lugging bucket after bucket to dump on the polyps and simulate a rainstorm. Their best farmers had explained it wouldn't work. You could simulate the high storm minerals the plants needed to form shells, but the cold air would stifle growth. Rollaine had agreed this was true, unless you had an edge, unless you grew the plants by the light of gemstones. The common field before Caledon was adorned with a most uncommon sight enormous emeralds, harvested from the hearts of chasm fiends, ensconced within short iron lamp posts that were in turn bolted to the stone ground. The emeralds were so large and so full of storm light that looking at one left spots on Kaladin's vision, though it was in full daylight. Beside each lantern sat an ardent with a drum, softly banging a specific rhythm. This was the secret. People would have noticed if gem light made plants grow, but the mixture of the light and the music changed something. Life spren. Little green motes that bobbed in the air spun around the drummers. The spren glowed brighter than usual, as if the light of the gemstones was infusing them, and they'd move off to the plants, spinning around them. This drained the light, like using a fabriel did. Indeed, the gemstones would periodically crack, as also happened to fabrials. Somehow, the mixture of spren, music, and light created a kind of organic machine that sustained plants via stormlight. Relaine, wearing his Bridge Four uniform, walked among the stations checking the rhythms for accuracy. He usually wore war form these days, though he'd confessed to Kaladin that he disliked how it made him seem more like the invaders with their wicked carapace armor. That made some humans distrust him. But work form made people treat him like a parchment. He hated that even more. Though to be honest, it was odd to see Relaine, with his black and red marbled skin, giving direction to Alethi. It was reminiscent of what was happening in Alethkar with the invasion. Relaine didn't like it when people made those kinds of comparisons, and Kaladin tried not to think that way. Regardless, Relaine seemed to have found purpose in this work. Enough purpose that Kaladin almost left him and continued on his previous task. But no, the days where Kaladin could directly look out for the men and women of Bridge Four were coming to an end. He wanted to see them cared for. He jogged through the field. While any one of these head-sized rock buds would have been considered too small to be worth much in Hearthstone, they were at least big enough that there would be grain inside. The technique was helping. Relaine! Kaladin called. Relaine. Sir? The listener asked, turning and smiling. He hummed a peppy tune as he jogged over. How was the meeting? Kaladin hesitated. Should he say it or wait? It had some interesting developments, promotions for Scar and Sigzil. Kaladin scanned the field. But someone can fill you in on that later. For now, these crops are looking good. The spren don't come as readily for humans as they did for the listeners, he said, surveying the field. You cannot hear the rhythms, and I can't get humans to sing the pure tones of Roshar. A few are getting closer, though. I'm encouraged, he shook his head. Anyway, what was it you wanted, sir? I found you an honor spren. Kaladin was accustomed to seeing an unreadable stoic expression on Relaine's marbled face. That melted away like sand before a storm as Relaine adopted a wide, face-splitting grin. He grabbed Kaladin by the shoulders, his eyes dancing, and when he hummed, the exultant rhythm to it almost made Kaladin feel he could sense something beyond. A sound as bombastic as sunlight, as joyful as a child's laughter. An honor, Spren, Relaine said. Who is willing to bond with a listener? Truly? Vratim's old spren, Yunfar. He was delaying choosing someone new, so Syl and I gave him an ultimatum. Choose you or leave. This morning he came to me and agreed to try to bond with you. Relaine's humming softened. It was a gamble, Kaladin said, since I didn't want to drive him away. But we finally got him to agree. He'll keep his word, but be careful. I get the sense he'll take any chance he can to wiggle out of the deal. Relaine squeezed Kaladin on the shoulder and nodded to him, a sign of obvious respect. Which made the next words he spoke so odd. Thank you, sir. Please tell the spren he can seek elsewhere. I won't be requiring his bond. He let go, but Kaladin caught his arm. Relaine? Kaladin said. What are you saying? Sil and I worked hard to find you a spren. I appreciate that, sir. I know you feel left out. I know how hard it is to see the others fly while you walk. This is your chance. Would you take a spren who was forced into the deal, Kaladin? Relaine asked. Considering the circumstances, I'd take what I could get. The circumstances, Relaine said, holding up his hand, inspecting the pattern of his skin. Did I ever tell you, sir, how I ended up in a bridge crew? Kaladin shook his head slowly. I answered a question, Relaine said. My owner was a mid-dawn light-eyes, nobody you'd know. An overseer among Sadius' quartermasters. He called out to his wife for help as he was trying to add figures in his head, and, not thinking, I gave him the answer. Relaine hummed a soft rhythm, mocking in tone. A stupid mistake. I'd been embedded among the Alethi for years, but I grew careless. Over the next few days, my owner watched me. I thought I'd given myself away, but no, he didn't suspect I was a spy. He just thought I was too smart. A clever Parshman frightened him, so he offered me up to the bridge crews. Relaine glanced back at Kaladin. Wouldn't want a man like that breeding now, would we? Who knows what kind of trouble they would make if they started thinking for themselves. I'm not trying to tell you that you shouldn't think, Relaine, Caledon said. I'm trying to help. I know you are, sir. But I have no interest in taking what I can get. And I don't think you should force a spren into a bond. It will make for a bad precedent, sir. He hummed a different rhythm. You will name me a squire, but I can't draw Stormlight like the rest. There's a wedge between me and the Stormfather, I think. Strange. I expected prejudice from humans, but not from him. Anyway, I will wait for a Spran who will bond with me for who I am, and the honor I represent. He gave Kaladin a bridge for salute, Tapping his wrists together, then turned to continue teaching songs to farmers. Kaladin trailed away toward the washing grounds. He could see the man's point, but to pass up this chance? Maybe the only way to get what Relaine wanted, respect from a spren, was to start with one who was skeptical. And Kaladin hadn't forced Yun-Fa. Kaladin had given an order, Sometimes soldiers had to serve in positions they didn't want. Kaladin hated feeling he'd somehow done something shameful despite his best intentions. Couldn't Relain accept the work he'd put into this effort, then do what he asked? Or maybe, another part of him thought, you could do what you promised him, and listen for once. Kaladin entered the washing field passing lines of women standing at troughs as if in formation, warring with an unending horde of stained shirts and uniform coats. He trailed around the ancient pump, which bled water into the troughs, and through a rippling field of sheets hung on lines like pale white banners. He found Xyle at the edge of the plateau. This section of the field overlooked a steep drop-off. In the near distance, Kaladin could see Navani's large construction hanging from the plateau, the device used to raise and lower the fourth bridge. It seemed like falling from here would leave one to fall for eternity. Though he knew the mountain must slope down there somewhere, clouds often obscured the drop. He preferred to think of Urethiru as if it were floating, separated from the rest of the world and the agonies it suffered. Here, at the outermost of the drying lines, Zyle was carefully hanging up a series of brightly colored scarves. Which light eyes had pressed him into laundering those? They seemed the sort of frivolous neck pieces the more lavish among the elite used to accent their finery. In contrast to the fine silk, Zyle was like the pelt of some freshly killed mink. His beech-tree cotton robe was old and worn, his beard untamed, like a patch of grass growing freely in a nook sheltered from the wind, and he wore a rope for a belt. Zyle was everything Kaladin's instincts told him to avoid. One learned to evaluate soldiers by the way they kept their uniforms. A neatly pressed coat would not win you a battle, but the man who took care to polish his buttons was often also the man who could hold a formation with precision. Soldiers with scraggly beards and ripped clothing tended to be the type who spent their evenings in drink rather than caring for their equipment. During the years of the saddiest Dalinar divide in the war camps, these distinctions had become so stark they'd practically been banners. In the face of that, The way Zael kept himself seemed deliberate. The Swordmaster was among the best duelists Kaladin had ever seen, and possessed a wisdom distinct from any other ardents or scholars. The only explanation was that Zael dressed this way on purpose, to give a misleading air. Zael was a masterpiece painting intentionally hung in a splintered frame. Kaladin halted a respectful distance away. Zile didn't look at him, but the strange ardent always seemed to know when someone was approaching. He had a surreal awareness of his surroundings. Syl took off toward him, and Kaladin carefully watched Zile's reaction. He can see her, Kaladin decided as Zile carefully hung another scarf. He arranged himself so he could watch Syl from the corner of his eye. Other than rock and cord, Kaladin had never met a person who could see invisible spren. Did Xyle have horn-eater blood? The ability was rare, even among Rock's kind, though he had said that occasionally a distant horn-eater relative was born with it. Well, Xyle finally asked, Why have you come to bother me today, stormblust? I need some advice, Find something strong to drink, Zile said. It can be better than stormlight. Both will get you killed, but at least alcohol does it slowly. Kaladin walked up beside Zile. The fluttering scarves reminded him of a spren in flight. Syl, perhaps recognizing the same, turned to a similar shape. I'm being forced into retirement, Kaladin said softly. Congratulations, Zyle said, take the pension, let all this become someone else's problem. I've been told I can choose my place moving forward so long as I'm not on the front lines. I thought, he looked to Zyle, who smiled, wrinkles forming at the sides of his eyes. Odd how the man's skin could seem smooth as a child's one moment, then furrow like a grandfather's the next. You think you belong among us, Zael said. The worn-out soldiers of the world. The men with souls so thin they shiver in a stiff breeze. That's what I've become, Kaladin said. I know why most of them left the battlefield, Zael. But not you. Why did you join the Ardens?" Because I learned that conflict would find men no matter how hard I tried, he said. I no longer wanted a part in trying to stop them. But you couldn't give up the sword, Kaladin said. Oh, I gave it up. I let go. Best mistake I ever made. He eyed Kaladin, sizing him up. You didn't answer my question. You think you belong among the swordmasters? Delanor offered to let me train New Radiance, Kaladin said. I don't think I could stand that seeing them fly off to battle without me. But I thought maybe I could train regular soldiers again. That might not hurt as much. And you think you belong with us? I... Yes. Prove it, Zahel said, snapping a few scarves off the line. Land a strike on me. What? Here? Now? Zyle carefully wound one of the scarves around his arm. He had no weapons that Kaladin could see, though that ragged tan robe might conceal a knife or two. Hand to hand, Kaladin asked. No, use the sword, Zyle said. You want to join the swordmasters? Show me how you use one. I didn't say. Kaladin glanced toward the clothing line where Syl sat in the shape of a young woman. She shrugged, so Kaladin summoned her as a blade, long and thin, elegant. Not like the oversized slab of a sword Dalinar had once wielded. Dull the edge, Chulbrain, Zyl said. My soul might be worn thin, but I'd prefer it remain in one piece. No powers on your part either. I want to see you fight, not fly. Kaladin dulled Sill's blade with a mental command. The edge fuzzed to mist, then reformed, unsharpened. Um, Kaladin said. How do we start the- Zyle whipped a sheet off the line and tossed it toward Kaladin. It billowed, fanning outward, and Kaladin stepped forward, using his sword to knock the cloth from the air. Zyle had vanished among the undulating rows of sheets. Carefully, Kaladin entered the rows. The cloths billowed outward in the wind, but then fluttered down, reminiscent of the plants he'd often passed in the chasms. Living things that moved and flowed with the unseen tides of the blowing wind. Zyle emerged from another row, pulling a sheet off and whipping it out. Kaladin grunted, stepping away as he swiped at the cloth. That was the man's strategy, Kaladin realized. Keep Kaladin focused on the cloth. Kaladin ignored the sheet and lunged towards Zyle. He was proud of that strike. Adolin's instruction with the sword seemed almost as natural to him now as his old spear training. The lunge missed, but the form was excellent. Zile, moving with remarkable spryness, dodged back among the rows of sheets. Kaladin leaped after him, but again managed to lose his quarry. Kaladin turned about, searching the seemingly endless rows of fluttering white sheets, like dancing flames, pure white. Why do you fight, Kaladin, storm Xyle's phantom voice called from somewhere nearby. Kaladin spun, sword out. I fight for Alethkar. Ha! You ask me to sponsor you as a swordmaster, then immediately lie to me? I didn't ask. Kaladin took a deep breath. I wear Delinar's colors proudly. You fight for him, not because of him, Zile called. Why do you fight? Kaladin crept in the direction he thought the sound came from. I fight to protect my men. Closer, Zyl said. But your men are now as safe as they could ever be. They can care for themselves, so why do you keep fighting? Maybe I don't think they're safe, Kaladin said. Maybe I don't think they can care for themselves, Zyl asked. You and old Dalinar. Hens from the same nest. A face and figure formed in a nearby sheet, puffing toward Kaladin as if someone were walking through on the other side. He struck immediately, driving his sword through the sheet. It ripped, the point was still sharp enough for that, but didn't strike anyone beyond. Sill momentarily became sharp, changing before he could ask, as he swiped to cut the sheet in two. It writhed in the wind, severed down the center. Xyle came in from Kaladin's other side, and Kaladin barely turned in time, swinging his blade. Xyle deflected the strike with his arm, which he'd wrapped with cloth. In his other hand, he carried a long scarf that he whipped forward, catching Kaladin's offhand and wrapping it with shocking tightness like a coiling whip. Xyle pulled, yanking Kaladin off balance. Kaladin maintained his feet, barely, and lunged with a one-handed strike. Xyle again deflected the strike with his cloth-wrapped arm. That sort of tactic would never have worked against a real shard blade, but it could be surprisingly effective against ordinary swords. New recruits were often surprised at how well a nice thick cloth could stop a blade. Xyle still had Kaladin's offhand wrapped in the scarf, which he heaved, spinning Kaladin around. Damnation! Kaladin managed to maneuver his blade and slice the cloth in half, still becoming sharp for a moment, Then he leaped backward and tried to regain his footing. Zyles strode calmly to the side, whipping his scarf with a solid crack, then spinning it around like a mace. Kaladin didn't see any stormlight coming off the ardent, and he had no reason to believe the man could surge bind. But the way the cloth had gripped Kaladin's arm had been uncanny. Ziles stretched the scarf in his hands. It was longer than Kaladin had expected. Do you believe in the Almighty, boy? Why does that matter? You ask why faith is relevant when you're considering joining the Ardents? To become a religious advisor? I want to be a teacher of the sword and spear, Kaladin said. What does that have to do with the Almighty? All right, then. You ask why God is relevant when you're considering teaching men to kill? Kaladin inched carefully forward, his blade held before him. I don't know what I believe. Nivani still follows the Almighty. She burns glyph wards every morning. Dalinar says that the Almighty is dead, but he also claims there's another true god somewhere in a place beyond Shadesmar. Yasna says that a being having vast powers doesn't make them god, and concludes, from the way the world works, that an omnipotent, loving deity cannot exist. I didn't ask what they believe. I asked what you believe. I'm not confident anyone knows the answers. I figure I'll let the people who care argue about it, and I'll keep my head down and focus on my life right now. Za'el nodded to him as if that answer was acceptable. He waved Kaladin forward. Trying to keep his sword form in mind, he'd trained mostly on smoke stance, Kaladin tested forward. He fainted twice, then lunged. Xyle's hands became a blur as he pushed the sword to the side with his stretched-out scarf, then twisted his hands around, neatly wrapping the scarf around the sword. That gave him leverage to push the sword farther away as he stepped into Kaladin's lunge and slid his makeshift wrapping along the length of the blade, coming in close. Here, he somehow twisted his cloths around to wrap Kaladin's wrists as well. Kaladin tried a headbutt, but Xyle stepped into the move and raised one side of the scarf, letting Kaladin's head go underneath it. With a twirl and a twist, Zyle completely tied Kaladin in the scarf. How long was that thing? The exchange left Kaladin with not only his hands tied tightly, but a scarf now holding his arms pinned to his sides, Zile standing behind him. Kaladin couldn't see what Zyle did next, but it involved sending a loop of scarf up over Kaladin's head and around his neck. Zyle pulled tight, choking off Kaladin's air. I think we're losing, Syl said, to a guy wielding something he found in Adolin's sock drawer. Kaladin grunted, but a part of him was excited. Frustrating as Zile could be, he was an excellent fighter, and he tested Kaladin in ways he'd never seen before. That was the sort of training he needed in order to beat the fused. As Zile tried to choke him, Kaladin forced himself to remain calm he changed Syl into a small dagger. A twist of the wrist cut the scarf, which unraveled the entire trap, leaving Kaladin free to spin and slash with his again dulled knife. The ardent blocked the knife with his cloth-wrapped arm. He immediately caught Kaladin's wrist with his other hand, so Kaladin dismissed Syl and summoned her again with his off hand, swinging to make Zile dodge back. Zile snatched a sheet off the fluttering lines, twisting it and wrapping it into a tight length like a cord. Kaladin rubbed his neck. I think. I think I have seen this style before. You fought like Azure does. She fights like me, boy. She's hunting for you, I think. So Adolin has said. The fool woman will have to get through cultivation's perpendicularity first, so I won't hold my breaths waiting for her to arrive. He waved for Kaladin to come at him again. Kaladin slipped a throwing knife from his belt, then fell into a sword and knife stance. He waved for Zyle to come at him instead. The swordmaster smiled, then threw his sheet at Kaladin. It puffed out, spreading wide as if going for an embrace. By the time Kaladin had cut it down, Xyle was gone, ducking out into the rippling cloth forest. Kaladin dismissed Syl, then waved toward the ground. She nodded, and dived to look under the sheets, searching for Zyle. She pointed in a direction for Kaladin, then dodged between two sheets as a ribbon of light. Kaladin followed carefully. He thought he caught a glimpse of Zyle through the sheets, a shadow across the cloth. Do you believe, Kaladin asked as he advanced, in God or the Almighty or whatever? I don't have to believe, the voice drifted back. I know gods exist. I simply hate them. Kaladin dodged between a pair of sheets. In that moment, sheets began ripping free of the lines. They sprang for Kaladin, six at once, and he swore he could see the outlines of faces and figures in them. He summoned Syl and, keeping his head, ignored the unnerving sight and found Xyle. Kaladin lunged. xyle moving with almost supernatural poise, raised two fingers and pressed them to the moving blade, turning the point aside exactly enough that it missed. The wind swirled around Kaladin as he stepped into the rippling sheets. They flowed against him, insubstantial, but then entangled his legs. He tripped with a curse, falling to the hard stone. A second later, Zyle had Kaladin's own knife in hand pressed to his forehead. Kaladin felt the point right among his scars. You cheated, Kaladin said. You're doing something with those sheets and that cloth. I couldn't cheat, Zile said. This wasn't about winning or losing, boy. It was for me to see how you fought. I can tell more about a man when the odds are against him. Zile stood and dropped the knife with a clang. Kaladin recovered it, sitting up and glanced at the fallen sheets. They lay on the ground normal cloths, occasionally shifting in the breeze. In fact, another man might have dismissed their motions as a trick of the wind. But Kaladin knew the wind. That had not been the wind. You can't join the Ardents, Zyle said to him, kneeling and touching one of the cloths with his finger, then lifting it up and pinning it onto the drying line. He did the same for the others, each in turn. Why can't I? Caledon asked. He wasn't certain Zile had the authority to forbid him, but he also wasn't certain he wanted to take this path if Zile, the one Ardent he felt true respect for, was opposed. Do you make everyone who wants to retire to the Ardentia fight you for the privilege? It wasn't a fight about winning or losing, Zile said. You're not unwelcome because you are lost. You're unwelcome because you don't belong with us. He whipped a sheet in the air, then pinned it in place. You love the fight, Kaladin. Not with the thrill that Dalinar once felt, or even with the anticipation of a dandy going to a duel. You love it because it's part of you. It's your mistress, your passion, your lifeblood. You'd find the daily training unsatisfying. You'd thirst for something more. You'd eventually turn and leave, and that would put you in a worse position than if you'd never started. He tossed his scarf at Kaladin's feet, though it must have been a different scarf, for the one he'd started with had been bright red and this one was dull gray. Return when you hate the fight, Zyle said. Truly hate it. He walked off between the sheets. Kaladin picked up the fallen scarf, then glanced at Syl, who descended through the air near him on an invisible set of steps. She shrugged. Kaladin gripped the cloth, then strode around the sheets. The swordmaster had moved to sit at the rim of the plateau, legs over the edge, staring out across the nearby mountain range. Kaladin dropped the scarf on a pile of others, each of which was now gray. What are you? Kaladin asked. Are you like Wit? There had always been something about Zyle, something too knowing, something distinct, set apart, different from the others. No, Zyle said. I don't think there's anyone else quite like Hoyd. I knew him by the name Dust when I was younger. I think he must have a thousand different names among a thousand different peoples. And You? and settled down on the stone beside Xyle. How many names do you have? A few, Xyle said. More than I normally share. He leaned forward, elbows on thighs. Wind blew at the hem of his robe, dangling over a drop of thousands of feet. You want to know what I am? Well, I'm a lot of things. Tired, mostly but I'm also a Type 2 invested entity. I used to call myself a Type 1, but I had to throw the whole scale out once I learned more. That's the trouble with science. It's never done. Always upending itself. Ruining perfect systems for the little inconvenience of them being wrong. I... Kaladin swallowed. I don't know what any of that meant but thanks for replying wit never gives me answers at least not straight ones that's because wit is an asshole zyl said he fished in his robes pocket and pulled something out a small stone in the shape of a curling shell ever seen one of these so cast asked taking the small shell it was surprisingly heavy He turned it around, admiring the way it curled. Similar. That's a creature that died long, long ago. It settled into the mud and slowly, over thousands upon thousands of years, minerals infused its body, replacing it axon by axon with stone. Eventually, the entire thing was transformed. So... Natural soul-casting? Over time? A long time. A mind-numbingly long time. The place I come from, it didn't have any of these. It's too new. Your world might have some hidden deep, but I doubt it. That stone you hold is old. Older than wit, or your heralds, or the gods themselves. Kaladin held it up, then, out of habit, used a few drops of water from his canteen to reveal its hidden colors and shades. My soul, Zyle said, is like that fossil. Every part of my soul has been replaced with something new, though it happened in a flash for me. The soul I have now resembles the one I was born with, but it's something else entirely." I don't understand. I'm not surprised, Zyle thought for a moment. Imagine it this way. You know how you can make an imprint in creme, then let it dry and fill the imprint with wax to create a copy of your original object? Well, that happened to my soul. When I died, I was drenched in power. So when my soul escaped, it left a duplicate, a kind of Fossil of a soul. Kaladin hesitated. You died? Xyle nodded. Happened to your friend, too. Up in the prison. The one with that sword. Zeth, not my friend. The heralds, too, Xyle said. When they died, they left an imprint behind. Power that remembered being them. You see, the power wants to be alive. He gestured with his chin towards Syl, flying down beneath them as a ribbon of light. She's what I now call a Type One invested entity. I decided that had to be the proper way to refer to them. Power that came alive on its own. You can see her, Kaladin said. See? No sense. Zyle shrugged. Cut off a bit of divinity and leave it alone. Eventually it comes alive. And if you let a man die with too invested a soul, or invest him right as he's dying, he'll leave behind a shadow you can nail back onto a body. His own, if you're feeling charitable. Once done, you have this. Zyle waved to himself. Type 2 invested entity. Dead man walking. What a strange conversation. Kaladin frowned, trying to figure out why Zyle was telling him this. I suppose I did ask, so. wait. Maybe there was another reason. The fused? Kaladin asked. That's what they are? Yeah he said most of us stop aging when it happens gaining a kind of immortality is there a a way to kill something like you permanently lots of ways for the weaker ones just kill the body again make sure no one invests the soul with more strength and they'll slip away in a few minutes for stronger ones well you might be able to starve them A lot of Type IIs feed on power, keeps them going. These enemies of yours, though, I think they're too strong for that. They've lasted thousands of years already and seem connected to Odium to feed directly on his power. You'll have to find a way to disrupt their souls. You can't just rip them apart. You need a weapon so strong it unravels the soul. He squinted, looking off into the distance. I know through sorry experience those kinds of weapons are very dangerous to make and never seem to work right. There's another way, Kaladin said. We could convince the Fuse to stop fighting. Instead of killing them, we could find a way to live with them. Grand ideals, Zile said. Optimism. Yeah, you'd make a terrible swordmaster. Be wary of those fused, kid. The longer one of us exists, the more like a spren we become. Consumed by a singular purpose, our minds bound and chained by our intent. We're spren masquerading as men. That's why she takes her memories. She knows we aren't the actual people who died, but something else given a corpse to inhabit. She? Kaladin asked. Zyle didn't respond, though when Kaladin handed back the stone shell, Zyle took it. As Kaladin hiked off, the Swordmaster cradled it to his chest, staring out toward the endless horizon.